Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is my good friend, Dr. Jerry Hendricks, a retired United States Navy captain and strategist who is now a senior fellow with the Sangamore Institute Think Tank. He is also the author of the thought-provoking new article in the National Review, Save the Military-Industrial Complex, The Government Must Ensure Our Nation's War-Making Capacity. Jerry, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program, and it's been too long. It's great to be with you and uh, to have this really important discussion. Uh, I uh, absolutely uh, agree. Uh, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, it's a very thought-provoking piece. And all of a sudden, uh, defense industrial policy is in vogue for those of us who've been long-term practitioners. But before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. You get give a great explanation in the piece uh, that I think everybody in our audience knows, right? I mean, there was the Last Supper. We went from 107 uh, prime contractors at the end of the Cold War down to uh, five uh, mega contractors now. And even though we are an arsenal of democracy still, we still produce more than any, any other nation in the world. We are depleting those resources at an incredible rate. Uh, in order to support our Ukrainian allies, as well as our allies and partners. Uh, And now the focus is on how we build up those stocks. Doug Bush, the Army Acquisition Executive, is going up to 100,000 shells uh, a month. But we're still finding that on very big things that we need, we're still moving too slowly. We don't have the industrial capacity. As you note in the piece, you know, all of excess capacity and excess inventories were... um, seen as inefficient. So we went to just-in-time delivery and we got rid of that floor space. You propose a whole series of things that we need to consider as a nation to try to build up our capability and to really surge production of the things that we need. Walk us through what your foundational recommendations are, and then I want to dive a little bit deeper into each of those. Okay. Well, I mean, the, so when you make the point that we are still the arsenal of democracy, that's a relative term. So we, we have nowhere near the industrial capacity that we had at the height of the Cold War, uh, you know, when the when the army was running 11 arsenals uh, for uh, ordnance production that was in-house. That was the army itself producing from army uh, uh, and facilities, for instance. Those arsenals are largely all gone. We're down to a handful in much the same way as, you know, the Navy once had uh, 11 Navy shipyards and we're down to four today. So the internal production capacity uh, of the Department of Defense uh, has shrunk considerably. Uh, and then if you look at the industrial base, again, as I highlighted within the essay, you know, we went from 107 companies down to five. If you look at the, the, the mergers and consolidations that occurred essentially across a, a relatively short period of time, only eight years starting after the Last Supper in 1993, uh, until we were down to essentially the five major primes, and that was a means, uh, again, sort of this dimming-driven uh, uh, road to efficiency. So, you know, what I'm recommending is we, we, because the government had a role to play in the downsizing of uh, the defense industrial base, the government's going to have a role to play in the re-expansion of it. So uh, one of the things that I suggest is that we need to have targeted contracts uh, to small and medium businesses that we would look at, you know, for instance, and I'll, I'll just use a, 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 an example of 
large and small, I'm small and medium uh, unmanned surface vessels. Uh, these things could be, you know, something the Navy identified that it wants. Uh, there's also small to medium sized uh, unmanned aviation assets that the Air Force, the Navy are looking at. If the government stepped in and sort of targeted non-standard, non-prime producers to be, if not the lead uh, builder on that, at least to make several major components of it, and the government uh, in, in a very uh, uh, directed way, much like Bill Knutson, one of the examples I used is uh, first uh, as a civilian and then as a lieutenant general in the Army, this guy named Bill Knutson come out of the automobile factories of Detroit, General Motors and Ford he had had experience in. And he sort of was the overall czar coordinating the expansion of our industrial base at the beginning of World War II. You almost need someone who has a plan in the master Excel spreadsheet that knows where the capacity is within the defense industrial base and that begins letting uh, targeted contracts to those to get them first up to speed, then give them the ability to modernize, hire their workforce, and create resiliency and redundancy. Again, I'm making an argument for inefficiency in the defense industrial base. I do not want one and only builder of key components. I want a minimum of two, if not three. In the end, you will drive competitiveness back into the market, even right. as you're doing something that, quite frankly, a lot of free market uh, conservatives would say we shouldn't do. Um, you know, one of the other things I said is, is look where your workforce is. And I think that this is a key thing. What we're seeing in the United States right now, demographically, is that workers are no longer willing to move. Uh, that if you create, uh, you know, a huge cash incentive, uh, they're not just getting up and moving as they have in the past. You know, you know, there's a great story that, uh, you know, has just recently come out talking about the fact that, you know, the government can't even get people to, to stop working from home and come back to the office. People don't want to move. So you have to identify where your blue collar and your high tech workforce is and then try to make sure that you target uh, jobs and contracts in the areas where there is additional resilient working. Uh, and I specifically right. talked about the South Atlantic, the Gulf Coast, the Ohio and the Mississippi and along the Great Lakes, where there is an excess. There's about 125 percent uh, excess of blue collar manufacturing workforce in those regions. And so we, we need to be willing to go there. Uh, I, I take on the sacred cow uh, because the two political sides tend to get up in arms about whether it's a pro-union state or a right to work state. We need to set those things aside. We need to be willing to work with local governments uh, at the state level to try and get these things going, regardless of the political background. It's the workforce that's the key. And um, I would uh, agree with you. And I think that you can also see, uh, you know, that's exactly what the U.S. Army is doing, right? I mean, it's putting facilities, you know, in Texas. And I think another one's going into Arkansas. Yeah. where there's already existing industrial infrastructure, right? And this is a democratic administration uh, that's doing it because their point of view is, look, I mean, we just need these things manufactured, right? I mean, some of these are also going into Pennsylvania, given that shells are made in Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, for for example. I, I want to get uh, to your recommendation. You invoked Bill uh, Knudsen, uh, who was, uh, you know, at Ford and General uh, Motors. Uh, he is, uh, you know, the uh, Danish-born automotive executive who, um, was such a wizard of mass production and set up, for example, Ford's factories around the world and then made, made General Motors a force, became a three-star general overnight in charge of this, answering directly to the president of the United States. You also believe that this office should be created. 
one of the biggest problems we're finding now, Jerry, is not only a limitation at the prime level, but actually enormous numbers of bottlenecks that we have in the supply chain. Pretty much everything we try to do, the 36-month delivery deadline is based on the fact that the base itself cannot produce the guidance units, cannot produce the motors, cannot produce those fast enough because there's been too much consolidation at that level. Talk to us both at a high level what the office and the relationship has to be with the president, but then what are the subordinate things that have to happen at the granular level because the government is still, I'm sorry, I'm I'm somebody who believes that the government actually controls this. It is a monopsony. The government's yeah. in charge. Let's do away, you know, and there is competition, by the way, and we're doing industrial strategy every single day. So claiming we, we're not good at it just doesn't work. We are good at it. We do make calls. We're stewarding an industrial base, but talk to us at the high level and then what has to happen at the working level, at the granular sub-tier level. I, I like the way you just phrased that. So at the high level, so what was it about, uh, you know, what uh, Newton did? That's that was successful. First of all, Newton had left General Motors and and to come to D.C. to work for Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was one of those uh, dollar a year men uh, that had come out of industry and just effectively volunteered to kind of run things. But Newton was able to turn around and fly an army uh, bomber airplane back to Detroit or to any of the industrial centers. And he met directly with industry to talk with them about where they had capacity and how they can convert their factories over to making tanks from baking trucks or making bombers from making cars. Uh, and, and he went all over the country doing this, meeting directly with industry. Those types of direct contact uh, are no longer allowed. Um, you know, we have uh, regulations that have been laid down that add layers of approval and, and hundreds of lawyers to make sure that senior decision makers cannot have direct decision-making conversations with industry. And I think that we need to recognize that that's a mistake. That's one of the reasons that this is, uh, you know, one, we've built a tremendously hierarchical uh, structure that goes to decision-making on procurement. We need to flatten that organization down. You know, I, I think about the times when we've been able to go fast and, and I come back to like, for instance, when we created the Atlas and Titan uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, that was direct contact, again, between uh, an Air Force uh, assistant secretary and a brigadier general talking with industry on a day-to-day -day basis and making sure that they could take what was then 44 levels of approvals and they reduced that down to 11 in order to go fast to be able to get those, those two missiles in five and a half years. Similar effort happened with the Navy with creation of the George Washington class and the Polaris missile. We were known to, we could compress the hierarchy and get to the decision. So at the, at, the, at the high level, that's where we need to go is flattening the decision-making process. At the sub-granular level, you're absolutely correct as to how, uh, how this has to go. You know, so you need to have the targeted contracts again to add additional workforce and also add additional competitors. You know, I would like to see, you know, uh, you know, widget A being produced in, in two to three different locations rather than simply one location where a bottleneck because of COVID or because of some sort of an issue with labor or for that matter, just something that happens like a winter storm would cause one particular factory to fall back in its production schedule. We need to be able to have redundancy within that 
to make sure that we're still meeting those things. And you need to be able to prioritize and spend money on the critical components that everything else has to come together. Ultimately, there also has to be sort of a central coordinating location where you, where, where you are looking at these complex systems. And let's just say that it's a, a new weapon system like a hypersonic boost glide missile. You need to have someone who's tracking all the subcomponents to make sure that everything comes together at the right time in the right place in order to get into production and then have a plan to ramp. So where are the places in the country where that can actually be built, where there's the workforce and the machine tooling? You know, the, the, the other key thing that looks here is, you know, the, the machine tooling industry within the country has been really compromised over the last 30 years to be able to ramp up in advanced technology production. We're going to have to look beyond just the CHIPS Act and start looking at sort of the basics of machine tooling in the country to ramp back up that basic core enabling industry uh, within our industrial base. On yesterday's program, we heard from uh, senior officials, uh, Bill LaPlante, as well as uh, Secretary Kendall, about the things that they're doing. And there is a lot of focus on this, as you know, Jerry, uh, to try to do this, right? The services are working at uh, the um, Office of the Secretary of Defense is working on it. Uh, obviously, the Secretary of Defense is in the contact group and taking arms orders, for lack of a better word, from both our allies and partners, as well as uh, Ukraine. And I'm told uh, that the President of the United States believes this is a critically important issue. Um, what are the other things, right? But this president is not as engaged in it as, for example, Franklin Roosevelt was, or Harry Truman was, or even arguably perhaps Lyndon Johnson or Ronald Reagan were, right? What are the things that have to happen at a White House level? And what are some of the things maybe the president of the United States himself should be saying about this um, to give it kind of that urgency, the punch, um, and and the the focus, right? I mean, we have money that's going to submarine industrial base, a couple of billion dollars if, if we can get it, which is great. But I mean, that's a thing. We, you know, we need that to be happening on shipbuilding writ large. We need to have and happen to have that on aircraft production. Um, what what is what what needs to happen from a White House level from your standpoint? Well, again, I think the the sort of the recreation of uh, Bill Newton's role at the White House level in in the West Wing of having a special assistant to the president that everyone understands is is speaking with the president's voice and the president's priority on this to be sort of the overall. Uh, we, we've gotten used to using the word czar of of defense production. Uh, that, that understands what his full uh, authorities are within the Defense Production Act, what the president can do, and then essentially is working with industry um, and with labor and with all the other subcomponents that, that goes on within the American economy uh, to make things happen, that has the full authority to liaise with the Department of Defense, uh, as well as the Department of Commerce and the Department of Transportation. Everything that touches what we're going to need going forward with defense production and the defense industrial base uh, needs to be there. And, and that person needs to have uh, a sufficient staff. Um, and by the way, uh, the right background and experience. You, you highlight the point, and this is, I think, is important. You know, is, is President Biden, I think, uh, absolutely has his heart in the right place. He wants to support Ukraine, he wants to support Israel. Uh, they are acknowledging the importance of the threat against Taiwan. Uh, and so all the, the top line words are there. However, Joe Biden's background in the time in the Senate was in uh, foreign policy. The Foreign Relations Committee is on as well as on judiciary. That was where his experience went. Uh, did not have experience on the Armed Services Committee, 
is not deeply versed in that. So he needs to have that assistant who, who probably should not come out of the quote unquote policy world, one of the policy think tanks, but should probably be someone who has experience in the industry that can come in and help identify where the red tape is, where the obstacles are, and then can advise the president, get the president to approve, speak from the, the bully pulpit, as it were, on these priorities, and then go forth and have that interaction. I think then you, you have to sort of step down uh, to the next level, have someone within the cabinet level departments uh, that can take this and go uh, forward within that to take those priorities and then make sure that the money is getting to the right place where the pressure is being applied uh, in the right way. The other thing, too, is I think that they have to build uh, during the Trump administration, there was sort of a, a census or an assessment done of the defense industrial base. That process needs to be picked up again, go back, have a quick reassessment, modify, update that, find out where the pinch points are, the locations where, for instance, we are totally dependent on only one supplier uh, within the United States, or perhaps even dependent on foreign suppliers of key components, and then go after that to make sure that we're recreating that redundancy. Again, you, you need to have someone who has the master plan and, and has the knowledge to be able to leverage that that knowledge and then then make it productive. You know, the three of us, uh, our uh, producer Chris, you and I have been talking about uh, for for some time the perilous uh, uh, times uh, that we are in, uh, and it was great. And you noted it that the president made that link between Ukraine and deterring China, for example, in Taiwan, and stepping up our game in the Indo-Pacific. Um, the Trump industrial base study, by the way, was was the latest one, right? Our mutual mm -hmm. friend Brett Lambert did this in the Obama administration, tier by tier, sector by sector, to get get a sense of what those bottlenecks are. The the trouble is industrial base stuff is not considered cool uh, un, until you really need it. And then it's like, oh, wow, you know, this is a lot harder to build. We don't have the skill sets, for example, right? We don't have enough welders. Um, you know, why, why are you going to work in a shipyard exposed uh, you know, making $17 an hour when you can maybe make more, you know, at a fast food joint. Um, from your perspective, what are all the other subordinate, right? What is industry's obligation here? Um, for the first time in a long time, we have innovative new manufacturers. We saw Andrew roll out its Roadrunner, um, um, unmanned autonomous weapon system. It can be a surveillance uh, drone. It can be a strike drone. Uh, it can come back to base when it's not required. So we can do eyes on on a target and have some control uh, not to shoot something down or shoot it down. And you can ripple fire these and they come back home. They're jet engine powered. So it's not a fire and forget system. It can come home. Um, what what What's the obligation and what is it that we need to be seeing from industry on this? Because industry itself is very reluctant to invest, except for a couple of these innovative companies. The question is whether or not the government will support them uh, to yeah. to be able to deliver for us in a way, in an innovative and maybe non-traditional way, which is at the heart of, you know, Secretary Hicks's uh, replicator effort. Anyway, what, what do we need to be seeing from industry from your standpoint? Yeah. So I, I think, again, that we're, what are the important relationships now? Uh, you know, we have gotten into a, a position over the last 30 years where we've had a very comfortable relationship with the primes. Um, and the primes uh, are really have been invested in uh, stability within production. Uh, they want to know what their return on investment is going to be, what their profit is. They want um, a, a declared dividend that's consistent 
uh, they feel that they're primarily responsible to their stockholders. And I understand that. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's the business approach to these things is they want to make sure that that uh, quarterly report comes out well and that their stock price continues to climb and their stockholders, the owners of their company, are there. Uh, however, that is also uh, disincentivized um, our approach to the Department of Defense. Uh, and, and I'll just say that we have moved from a revolutionary approach uh, where we look through for new, uh, clean, breakthrough technologies um, to an evolutionary approach where we are, you know, what, on standard missile six right now? Uh, we've been working with these right. same systems, doing iterative uh, evolutionary approaches to developing them you know, sort of a steady state approach uh, rather than trying to do that significant technical leap ahead. You mentioned Anduril uh, and their new product that they've just rolled out and it's getting a lot of buzz, uh, you know, out here in California right now. Um, and, and the fact is, is that represents a, a revolutionary approach, you know, moving forward with a new uh, approach to how we're going to do unmanned uh, the idea of, of launch and recover uh, these unmanned systems with the multitude of missions that could be done. I think we need to embrace that innovative aspect of the industrial base um, and then try to you know, create an environment where they can really test a, and, and see how much they can get out of that and what that would mean for our overall force structure. So uh, again, I want to maintain that production capacity that I have in the because I really need it. They are the large producers. However, if I'm going to be looking for innovative approaches to how we're going to fight the next war, I'm probably not going to find that out of the primes. I'm going to find that out of the smaller companies. Those companies need to be protected uh, because uh, the, the common practice over the last 30 years is that when a small company comes up with a new idea, uh, and I'll use the example of Scan Eagle uh, as a company that came out with a really interesting light uh, unmanned aircraft uh, and Scan Eagle uh, in situ got bought out by one of the large primes, Boeing. And, and so, you know, my take on that is that, you know, you need to make sure that we protect the small companies to truly see where they can go with these revolutionary new designs uh, and new capabilities. Uh, we want to see them sort of grow, thrive and mature. Um, and I, I'm not sure that I want to see everybody merge and continue to sort of grow the big five. I think that if we actually can create competition amongst the small and medium defense companies, that you'll actually see some of the larger companies look at their, their sublines, uh, their, the, the, the subcomponents of their companies, look who's being productive and competitive. They may well sell off or divest of certain things when they see that they're not being competitive in those sectors vis-a-vis -vis the outside competitors that are rising. And again, the, the implication here is we want to build resiliency and redundancy and, and inefficiency into the defense industrial base. I want that to be a, a key factor going forward is I want competition back in that industrial base, competition of ideas, competition of production, competition of systems. And I think uh, there, I think the administration would agree with you, right? That ultimately uh, we are where we are because of a paucity of uh, uh, competition. The question and the challenge is that the department doesn't regularly reward um, those who are taking that risk by by actually ordering the products, right? I mean, this is about orders uh, at at the um, end of the day. Jerry, have you made an assessment on what the investment would be here? 
because we are doing this piecemeal, right? There's um, submarine industrial base money that's going in. It's to be able to support uh, the AUKUS uh, submarines, um, uh, the submarines for Australia. Um, okay, but we're not getting ships through their availabilities because we don't have the manpower and we also don't have uh, the the dry dock, uh, uh, whether floating or graving docks that can actually accommodate those ships. It's a particular problem in the nuclear side where submarine availabilities uh, have been uh, challenged. The Navy is doing some incredible things to try to get more life and more uh, uh, sea time from the ships that it has. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't got it, you don't got it. And there were some criticisms that, well, we're spending too much on buying the airplanes and not as much on buying buying the missiles. From from your standpoint, how how much do we need to be spending here? Because at the end well, of the day, no bucks, no buck Rogers. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that we need to have an honest appraisal, you know, that that the 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 three percent of GDP on the on defense uh, is, is probably not working. Uh, I know there's plenty of arguments uh, from the right that says that we need to be uh, more efficient with the money that they want to come in and, and do an audit of the Department of Defense. Find out again. Um, efficiency versus inefficiency is not what I'm going after here. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for inefficiency. I understand that this is going to get messy and there's going to be uh, redundancies here, uh, that money is not going to be uh, spent in, in the most conservative fashion. And, and that's okay uh, with me uh, because I, you know, the, the end state here is I want to create com uh, competition. I think that def the defense budget is going to have to rise. It's going to have to rise at a higher rate than what we've been seeing uh, lately. And it's going to have to maintain a sort of constant rate of expansion. You know, at the beginning of the Reagan administration, the last time we had uh, a, the last major expansion, um, the defense budget grew by 35% over the first six years of the Reagan administration. We're going to need to see something on that scale uh, to, in order to, to send the message to industry uh, in, in a very wide way that they need to make these investments, uh, that there is a money to be made here, uh, and, and that they need to make uh, you know, the hires in their, in their workforce to be able to go to the second or third shift in order to ramp up production. They need to have um, uh, uh, confidence that this demand signal is going to be there for a prolonged period of time. And so we have not seen that call for that level of defense spending. And I think that that is something that both sides are going to have to come together on to recognize that, yes, we are in a crisis moment uh, with everything that's going on and where our inventories are. You know, our inventories in some key systems are measured in days and weeks and instead of the year that we used to have in the, in the historic past. And in order to get those numbers back up in key systems, you know, we're going to have to spend a lot more. Uh, and, and again, you know, spend a lot more under management and direction with the idea that, you know, as I'm increasing the spending, I'm also looking to expand that industrial base. I don't want to spend all the money in one or five places. I want to spend it uh, across 100 different places in order to really modernize that industrial base. Um, I, I think uh, one uh, brilliant element of Replicator would be to bring in truly non-traditional suppliers uh, and commercial industry indeed, uh, which has a reputation for being able to mass produce right on any given level. Ford 
uh, Chrysler or particularly General Motors are making more cars on a daily basis and have industrial capacities that could build a lot of different uh, things. And indeed, we should be bringing companies like this in to look at the weapon designs to figure out how to make them more producible. Because right now, we build a lot of things because that's just how we build them. Um, let me take you to one last question, though. Right, you're a proud Republican, uh, a conservative, um, you know, uh, but unfortunately, it is also the Republican Party that is beginning to hamstring, pushing back on defense spending measures, pushing back on Ukraine aid, uh, and uh, uh, you know, as as well as some jobs retraining programs. Uh, and then we have Tommy Tuberville, who has a hold on uh, general officers, you know, hundreds. Uh, of general officers at this point, even though it looks like that log jam might clear in part. What are the obligations of lawmakers and how do you get the support from the legislature to spend the amount of money? Because on the one hand, there are Republicans who don't want it. On the other hand, there are Democrats uh, who don't want it. I think there's a large sensible middle who would go for this if, if the right case is made in the right way. What's the obligation and how do you get lawmakers to move on doing what it is that's absolutely necessary for the benefit of the country? It's allies and partners. It's cheaper to avoid a war than to fight one, right? So you can actually yeah. use industrial capacity as a real deterrent, but only if you step it up and take it seriously and put your money where your mouth is. Well, you know, Vago, you know, you and I are both uh, historians um, in, in one way or the other. And, and I keep coming back to uh, the conversation uh, when we were trying to generate support for the Marshall Plan probably the most influential uh, you know, step that the U.S. government took at the beginning of the Cold War to avert uh, you know, communist takeover of large segments of, of Europe, you know, spending on sort of rebuilding Europe's economy. Um, and at the time, there was a lot of resistance uh, from both the, the, the right wing as well as aspects of the left wing uh, in the United States uh, in opposition to the Marshall Plan. And they, there was an internal White House discussion. Um, and at the end of that discussion, uh, then uh, uh, Undersecretary of State Dean Acheson stepped up and said, you know, Mr. President, Harry Truman at the time, you know, this is what we have to say. And it was a really terrifying, stark assessment of what the world would look like uh, under, uh, you know, if, if communism was able to roll over these aspects of Europe. And uh, at that point in time, the Republican chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee turned to Harry Truman and says, if you go up to Capitol Hill and you present it that way, you will you will create uh, the vital center. You will get the votes. Uh, Dean Acheson referred to that as, as speaking clearer than truth. And I think that we need to have a conversation about with with clarity about clearer than truth about the threats that we're facing in the world whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether what's going on with Iran right now in the Middle East, we need to have understanding of the true threat uh, to our way of life and the system of governments that we've built, a system of economic governments and so on. But we need to have people that can state that clearer than truth. Now, I think that there are some leaders, uh, you know, Representative Mike Gallagher, for instance, in the House, I think has demonstrated his ability to work well with his ranking member on the special uh, China committee, um, we need to sort of grow, regrow that vital center. The, the, the Republicans that you're talking about, who I, have, I criticize openly, uh, you know, are, are part of not only the fiscal hawk wing of the party, but also this neo-isolationist wing of the party, sort of the Bob Taft Republicans come back to haunt us, uh, that want to turn away from our, the allies and partners that Dwight Eisenhower, every president from Dwight Eisenhower to Ronald Reagan to George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, all recognized as being important and critical to our national defense structure. 
So I think that we need to regrow uh, that vital center, find areas of mutual agreement between the left and the right, uh, be willing to work uh, with all aspects of the economy uh, to include, uh, you know, aspects of the Chamber of Commerce and the labor unions, you know, and to bring these things together. And, uh, you know, I, I'm eager to be part of that conversation. Um, and, and I'm hoping that others will sort of join. I was, I was delighted that, that I published this essay in the National Review, you know, a, uh, a, a, a flagship of conservative thought. Uh, and at the same time, to take on a touchy issue like industrial policy, which is something that conservatives and Milton Friedman uh, economists have sort of avoided. They, they want to have the free market provide. Well, I don't think that in a monopsony, the free market will provide. In fact, the free market approach has placed us in, in great danger. Um, and, and by the way, you know, before we leave, I, I, I touch on the idea of you know, arguments that I'm hearing out there about why don't we just access the global economy? Why don't we ask the South Koreans to build ships for us or, or others to do it? And it's like, I, I'm not sure that I want to put my, my industrial capacity under the uh, threat umbrella of the Chinese in Asia. And, and that just doesn't make sense to me. We need to have, uh, for, from a sense of national sovereignty, we need to have the ability to produce uh, our own uh, defense needs here in our country. Um, I would uh, put one asterisk on that, uh, which is a, a great place to end it. But I, I would say we need to bring our allies and partners into this. They have a lot of technology. They've got a lot of stuff they do smarter and better than we do. And we've got to bring it and use as much of it and engage as much of it as possible. And, you know, if if uh, some of this are collaboratives, there are brilliant ideas on modular weapon systems that all of our allies and partners can help manufacture to give us scalability and and uh, more uh, options at the end of the day, deep in our magazines. I think that the great example of that and how you go about doing that is is uh, like our shipbuilder up in Wisconsin, which is a European shipbuilder who came to the United States, made investments here, helped us to improve our production methods, um, and and thus has overall helped to lift our defense industrial base. So if there are allies and partners that want to contribute and want to participate, I would just encourage them to make the case for doing that here, uh, to bring what they have learned, but make it additive to our industrial base so that we benefit in the end. Indeed. Uh, Jerry, thanks very much. Hope uh, you and yours have a great holiday, holiday season and a very happy new year. Uh, and already looking forward to starting the new year with the bang with you uh, joining us to follow up on this, uh, because it's an issue uh, that is critically important to us on this program, uh, to me personally, and I know to you personally as well. So let's keep up the good fight and get the iceberg moving in the right direction. Thank you.